the reading today is from uh, Matthew chapter 5, uh, verses 1 to 10. Now, when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown mercy. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called sons of God. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Yeah, thank you for the invitation to come and share. I, I, uh, I'd like to start by looking quickly at the Beatitudes. I've um, Jeff Casey, some of you might know Jeff and Chris Casey from um, Footscray Church of Christ. I remember Jeff one day saying that if you don't read much of the Bible or much of anything, at least read the first three chapters of Genesis and then the Sermon on the Mount. He said if you read those six chapters and soak your life in those six chapters, it will make an enormous difference. And um, he said, you know, you start off, it tells you how God intended the world to be, the fall and the consequences of being, leaving the Garden of Eden. We've always looked for a home ever since, haven't we? And then the Beatitudes, Christ's answer to those, to those things that start in Genesis, those six, those six chapters. And uh, I read a book a while back called The Christ of the Mount by E. Stanley Jones. Some of you might know him, he's a Methodist writer. And uh, it opened up a whole lot of these things for me. I'd like to share just a little bit this morning uh, as before we look at the prison aspect of it. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for these is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. The poor in spirit, the submissive in spirit. There's something with us, within us in our human nature that is very dominant and very controlling and very, we want to be, we know that we are the most special person in the world, don't we? If you show me a photo of my old school class, I'll look for one person. And we all do that, don't we? We know that we're special. And until we get to the point of where we know that God, in grace and goodness, is more important and more special than I am, and we bow the spirit and we submit and we become poor in spirit, we can't know the kingdom of God. It's a, it's a change of heart. Remember Jesus said, you know, repent. It's part of a heart change. And then, then he said, blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. And when we submit to the Lord, <clears throat> when we seek God with all our heart, <clears throat> excuse me, then there's a certain grieving there because we've come to see that the world is not how God intended it to be. And I'll buy, I used to be a pastor with God Squad. And um, because of those connections with all the, the bikers in the prison system, you get to know some of the old bikers. And some of them are very cunning and, and clever and, and astute. And one old guy said to me one day, he said, he said if you get a... This was two or three years ago before the Royal Commission. He said, if you get a gun, you can rob a bank. 
But if you get a bank, you can rob everybody. <laughs> that was before the Royal Commission. One of the old bikers said to me one day, he said, the thing that stuffs me up is the picture in my head of how the world should be. It's quite profound, isn't it? The picture in my head of how the world should be. And we'll come back to that a little bit later. So there's a certain amount of grief and mourning. And the Lord has promised comfort when we reach that point. And then he said, blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. That's not weak, that's meek. And that word was used early, early in history, um, when it was first used in, in, in early times, where it was used about a, a stallion who was, a wild stallion who was living in the wild. And the stallion was captured, <coughs> captured and trained and broken in. And it was referred to that the stallion was meek. It still had all the strength and vitality, but it was under control. And that's the picture here where Jesus is saying, when we submit our spirit to the Lord, when we go through that grief and are comforted, then we have a meekness, a strength under control, deep roots, a good foundation. Things don't push us around so much that we are, we are strong and we are strong in the Lord's strength. Then the next one where he says, your hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. Now when we start that journey of really seeking to be who God intended us to be, to walk in relationship with the Lord and to make changes in our life, because we know that's what the Lord wants, that we start to change direction in our lives, that we, that we want to be a clean vessel for the Master to use. We want our life to be how it should be. Then... The Lord says there's a blessing in that. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. And then blessed are the merciful. That's the balance of seeking righteousness is mercy. You see, in our humanity, it's so easy for us to become, <coughs> when I start to get my life straightened out and things start to improve, I can look at my friends and say, why aren't they doing this? Why aren't they on this journey too? Why aren't they being blessed? And righteousness can so easily turn into self-righteousness. And there is nothing more damaging to the Lord, is there, than when I become self-righteous and judgmental. So that's why Jesus balanced it with mercy. Blessed are the mercy, merciful, for they will be shown mercy. I mean, quite a few guys have gone in prison who have, who have said, God might be, might be able to forgive me, but I can't forgive myself for what I've done. And so there's this thing of mercy that's needed. Blessed are the merciful and blessed are the pure in heart for they will see God. And when those two things are put together it's, it's interesting to, to there's two groups of three here and there's a past two things there's, there's eight, eight points of, of the, um, the Beatitudes and the last two are, are, are the peacemakers, blessed are the peacemakers, for they will be called the children of God or the sons of God. Remember, Jesus was called the Prince of Peace. And when we do that well, we honour the Lord in that way. And then the last one is, blessed are the persecuted for, because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. When we're really persecuted for righteousness, not just paying the price of doing the right thing, but when we're persecuted for it, we identify with Jesus. We come to know what Jesus felt in a way that we can't know any other way. When we're really given a hard time because of, of seeking righteousness, then, then we identify with Jesus. And you see that links right back with the, 
with verse 3, where it says, Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. In the same way, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. See, the two things link. And it's just a beautiful way that Jesus taught it. Now, obviously, he was teaching to people who didn't, most of them didn't read and write. So he's doing it in a way that they could memorise it. And he presented it in thought, an opposing thought, you know, the poor in spirit and then the mourn. There's no real connection there. But then the result of both thoughts joined together make a third thought. And it's, if you put it in academic terms, there's a thesis, an antithesis or antithesis, and then a synopsis. The combining of the first two thoughts to hold the third. And Jesus taught that, that beautifully and he did it in a very, very simple way and it's a wonderful way of, of teaching. Jesus' teaching was, was um, it's an incredible thing to go through the scriptures and look at the way Jesus taught what he did and how he taught. It's, it's wonderful. But those verses, I'd just like to, to think this morning on those, those things, the goodness and mercy. If we get that balance in our life, there's a purity of heart comes. There's a way of seeing the world that comes when we walk in that light. And we walk, you know, Jesus said, I, I am I'm the light of the world. And when we walk in that light, um, when his children walk in that light, it reveals a light to the world that, that is enormously attractive. People can't resist it when we, when we walk in that way and honour the Lord in that way. Remember the prophet in Micah chapter 6. He says, what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. See those three things again. To act justice, live out righteousness, to love mercy and then to walk humbly with your God. The consequences of those two things is a walk with the Lord. And it's, it's just a, uh, it's been an enormous encouragement for me over the years. Those, 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 just those simple principles that I, I listen to the uh, Sermon on the Mount regularly and I've found it an enormous help in my life. Sometimes dealing with darkness and evil. Um, the scriptures talk about the washing of the word, don't they? To wash away things and to help us to, to keep, our, keep close to the Lord. And it's been an enormous help for me. When I was a 16-year-old, Back in 1963, I'm 72 now, in a couple of weeks, um, a little fellowship at Yakandanda visited the Beechworth Prison. One of the members of the church there worked for the SEC in those days. And he had some electrical work inside the prison. And he said to the governor, Do you have, there's about 90 men in there at that stage. He said, do you have any um, anything of entertainment or help for the for the for the men, and the governor said no. And he said, well, "What about if we came in and showed a Christian movie?" And the governor said, "You can do anything you like, providing it doesn't cost me anything." <laughs> so it was different in those days, wasn't it? And so we used to go. We used to go in, and um, the little fellowship would go in, a group of us, and show Facts for Faith films. Anyone old enough to remember the old movies from Media Bible Institute and those City of the Bees and things like that? And I remember sitting as a 16-year-old in the prison and I was going through a stage where, where um, most 16-year-olds, we know all the, all the answers of, for the world, don't we? And we, we, you know, we know it all. But I've been weighing up about the Christian faith and I knew it either had to be extremely important or not important at all. It couldn't be, it couldn't be mediocre. And uh, my dad, I'd, I'd 
pointed out to my dad some hypocrisy in local Christians and saying that Christianity is not worth anything because people don't live up to it and things like that. My dad was very wise. He said, he said, if you're going to reject it, that's up to you, whether you accept it or reject it, but at least have the integrity to know what you're rejecting. Read the Bible, then make up your mind. And I've been reading it ever since and finding it such a blessing. And, but he challenged me in that way and it was good. But I remember sitting in the prison and thinking, if the good news is not relevant here, it's not relevant anywhere. If this is a too hard bastard or beyond the reach of grace or beyond the reach of forgiveness or beyond the reach of human change, then it's not, not, um, not relevant anywhere. And so I started a search and a reasoning and a study of both the brokenness of humanity and, and, and the gospel. And um, there's been lots of things that I've, I've learned through that time. I, um, in 1978, we came down, we had some friends, um, Kathy's family came down from, from Woolamine, down near Bass, where um, at that stage, John Smith from God Squad was a, a school teacher and a um, pastor in a little Methodist church down there. We met John Smith and we became friends. And um, when we got married, they used to come up to our farm at Yakandandra to um, have some time with us when they needed a break. But we came down to Melbourne in, in 1978. I did some study at the old Bible college. And uh, but several times we visited the prison in, in Pentridge with God Squad. And um, then we went, when we went back to the farm the next year, some of the guys who had met at the barbecues and prison visits in Pentridge uh, were transferred to Beechworth Prison. So that's when I started visiting Beechworth Prison. And then and there were guys who'd had no visits and no contact from outside, so I'd link them up sometimes with other Christians who, who were interested in coming in. There weren't that many Christians who were interested in coming in. But we started visiting and, and uh, I, um, it was, a, it was a, an interesting experience. And I guess when, when we talk about prisons, in any group of people, especially a group of people like this, there are those amongst us who are victims of crime. And you know what it is to be a victim of crime and, and the fear and the pain and the hurt and of that. I had a friend in, in God Squad who, um, whose son was murdered. And the, his son was with his mates and they, was, uh, they weren't Christians and they were a fairly wild group and they had lots of... They used to go fishing together and they were, they, were, they were mates. But one of the guys started dealing a little bit with drugs and he put on this party and there was lots of alcohol and drugs there and they needed someone to go and buy some more booze and this bloke who ran the drug thing asked my friend's son to go. He was the only one sober enough to do it and, and um, when he refused and made fun of him, he had a pistol and he went, says he meant to threaten him, he killed him, he shot him and killed him. And to spend time with both of those families while they grieve, um, the, the couple whose son had been murdered and the son who had done that in, in, in prison, who I was, I was visiting, and to see what happens to both families um, and just the pain and the, the anguish of all that, that journey um, is incredible to watch. You know, the mum whose son was killed three years later she would cry herself to sleep at night clutching the shirt her son was wearing when he was shot. You don't read about that in the newspapers, do you? Just the grief and the brokenness that comes through crime. So please don't think we take 
the effect of crime lightly or, or, or glamorise it or one of the old guys in the prison not long before he died said to me, he said he wishes the crime writers who write in the newspapers would write something of the reality of the effect of crime on the families as, as well, those the perpetrators as well as the victims that there would be a more broad picture of that but it's a uh, it's a fascinating subject and people want to read about it and they love to be entertained by it one of the things that I've, I've learned and, and learned about uh, is grace. And in Philip Yancey's book, What's So Amazing About Grace, there's a quote on the back of that book, or at least the copy I had or have, which says, there's nothing I can do to make God love me more, and there's nothing I can do to make God love me less. It's an incredible statement, isn't it? It's hard to get your head around that the immensity of that. And it's the comfort to me to know that, that God doesn't give me a cold shoulder when I do the wrong thing, that he still loves me. But what about other people? What about people who do awful crime? And um, I start telling stories. One of, one of the guys that I got to know in the prison was a, a, um, a Coptic... Um, Christian from the Middle East and one day in Barwon prison we used to have some good chats he, he was a he was a uh, quite a hardline Christian but we used to have some good chats and one day he sat me down in Barwon prison he got five of the Islamic guys the leaders of the Islamic community in the prison and sat them down with me and he said to me now tell them where they're wrong <laughs> <laughs> And these blokes were big guys, you know, with their chest out, you know, and I, and I thought, <laughs> a bit of a minefield. And I just said, I knew they were devout, these guys, they prayed five times a day. And I said to them, I admire your search for righteousness. And I said, I don't know any Christians who pray five times a day. Your, your search and your, 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 your commitment to righteousness is, is, I admire it. And we talked about that for a while. And then I said, as a Christian, I see God's grace. I can't offend it or I can't earn it. There's nothing I can do to make God's love me more. There's nothing I can do to make God love me less. How do you see that as Islamic guys? And we talked for more than an hour. And we've been friends ever since. But when they see me, they, they bow. They, we, we, we're mates. But I, I think, isn't that a wonderful thing? That God's grace is so enormous. And it breaks so many barriers. And it... It, it just brings people closer to God. Uh, yeah. one, of the, one of the early lessons I learned was that in the prison, people are not... Um, you know, when we grow up, we assume that our childhood is normal. And, we, and everybody seems to do that. And I remember a guy in the Beechworth prison where we used to, we used to go in on Wednesday evenings, two or three of us, and we had a little group after the, after the day, and... and uh, one of the guys, and he's given me permission to use the story, his name was Lucky, Lucky Allen. Lucky was his nickname. He was always gambling. He literally would gamble on two flies on the wall, or which, which page the book fell open to, all that sort of thing. But one day, we found out it was his birthday. He was in his mid-40s. He'd been in prison a long time. And um, so we found out his birth was birthday the next Wednesday. So Cathy cooked him, Cathy, my wife, cooked him a cake a sponge and we put some can iced it and put some candles on it and took it into the prison and I uh, 
we got together and I said, come on, Lucky, let's celebrate your birthday. And he just swore at me and walked out. And I didn't quite know what I'd done wrong, but anyway, he came back in later in the group, we were about to sit down and eat, and I said to him, come on, Lucky, we'll have your birthday celebrations now. And again, he just told me where to go and swore at me and walked out. Well, the other blokes didn't waste his cake, they ate his cake for him. <laughs> but going out of the prison that night, I saw him and I went over and apologised, because obviously I'd done something wrong. And I went over and said, Lucky, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to upset you. And he said, oh, it's all right. He said, I've never had a birthday cake. I didn't know what to do. Oh. Imagine that. Little boy growing up, no one had ever cared about him enough to put a candle on a cake on his, on his birthday. And I didn't know there were people like that. And it was, it's been a, a shock to the system sometimes, thinking of the, the, the effect of, of um, people's lives and how it affects them right through. Um, how do they learn about God's love? How do, where do you start with someone like that? It's been a privilege giving the, the scriptures to, to people in the prison. There was a bloke in, in, um, in H Division in Pentridge. He was under isolation and he was, he'd, he'd had his... Um, he'd had his um, there was no contact visits at all at that time in, in, in Pentridge, in, in H Division. And this chap really loved his girlfriend and he wanted to hold her hand up and able to give her a kiss. And so he swallowed two springs off his bed and a spoon and a fork, forced it down his throat so that he'd be taken to the hospital where they could hold hands and kiss. That was his aim, to get to the hospital. And his bowels were bleeding and he, they didn't operate, they just let, the, let it stay there and he, he was there at the hospital for a while and I got to know him. And he was a white supremacist and he was a hard line, a hard man. And he had his swastikas on each side of his neck and tattoos and he even had a, one day I was visiting him in the summer and he had shorts on and there was this funny tattoo on his leg and I said, what's that? He said, oh, it's a picture of Hitler. We only got halfway through before the prison officers found us. <laughs> yeah, so he only had half a picture of Hitler on his leg. But he, um, he's telling me one day how much he hated the Jews. And, I, um, and he was fairly well informed. He's quite an intelligent guy, done a lot of homework. I said to him, have you ever read the scriptures where the beautiful balance between capitalism and, and care and socialism in the Old Testament, the way God set it up? And he said, no, he hadn't. I said, well, if I get you a good Bible with study notes, will you also read the Gospels? And he said he would. He had plenty of time on his hands in H Division. And um, I visited him a while back and he said, I said, how are you going with the Gospels? And he said, oh, he said, um, he said, I'm really fascinated by the story of Jesus. He said, the only thing I don't like about it is was he, he was a Jew. So it didn't sort of fit into his thing. But a while back, I, later on, I visited him and he said, I said, how are you going with the Gospels? And he said, oh, he said, I've stopped reading them. And I said, why? And he said, well, he said, I find that the more I read them, the less I am able to hate. It's changing me. And he said, I can't afford not to hate it here. I'll end up with a knife in my back. I said, well, you know where to come when you, when you want to change. And he said, yes, I will. Isn't that fascinating? He was, able, he was aware of the effect of the scriptures in that situation, how it was changing him to read God's word. And yet so often we're slack at it, don't we? There's another guy who was in, who was a, um, he won awards as a young man studying engineering. He, he was a very bright young fellow. 
He was a champion rower in Melbourne here. He was a, then he had a breakdown and, and developed schizophrenia and did an awful crime and ended up in prison. And when he was in, he was in G Division, a psych part of Pentridge at that stage, and someone gave him a Bible. And they just handed it to him and they said, if you, if you read this, you'll find it will meet your needs. So he took it back to his cell and he said, well, what are my needs? He said, my main need is a job. So he looked through the Bible and found a job. <laughs> and he read Job and became a, such a strong Christian. He's, he comes along to distance now and he loves the Lord. And he's been so, his life changed through reading Job because that was his need. But isn't God wonderful? He doesn't work within our, our boundaries, does he? I, um, my time's almost up. I've got telling stories. There's a, um, a chap that I got to know who was a very long-termer. He was involved in big crimes in Melbourne here. I got to know him over the years and he would tell me stories. And I got him to write something down because next Monday's Mother's Day. Next Sunday's Mother's Day. And he was telling me this story and I said to him, could you write that down for me? And he did. His dad was a, uh, a champion boxer. They lived in Richmond. And he, uh, his dad had a, an old horse stable set up for a, as a boxing ring and he would train it. And so his, this 11-year-old boy had to clean this out every time. This is, what he, this is what he wrote. One of the most frightening yet touching times occurred when I was about nine years old. I was late home from school and hadn't swept out or mopped the gymnasium, the, the boxing ring. My father was furious and was giving me a hiding when my mother intervened. She deliberately provoked him toward herself to protect me. And as a result, uh, she was left unconscious on the floor. She lay there for some time and I thought she was dead. But then she stirred and somehow staggered to the bathroom. The following day, I crept into her room. I just wanted to be with her. She was sitting up in bed. Her face was swollen and she resembled a bruised and battered pumpkin. When she asked who was there, I realised that she couldn't see as her eyes were swollen shut. I climbed up beside her and nestled into her arms and she grimaced and I was scared for her and she became upset and, and I became upset and my tummy hurt and sick. She must have sensed something and she said, Son, why do you think we have eyes? So we can see, I answered. No, we have eyes so we can cry. <coughs> I don't cry much, do I, Mum? No, son, you don't, but there are times when you need to cry. Why? Because you see, that makes us feel... Well, you see, you see, we see things that make us feel that way. We become upset. Do you cry much? Yes, I do. Sometimes it's, only the it's the only relief I have from what I feel. And you must never be afraid to cry either. Do you hear? Yes, Mum. I hear. And we did. We cried for a long time. Isn't that beautiful? Mm -hmm. A mum teaching a little boy it's okay to cry. And he always remembered it. And, and, and he, uh, we became mates and he was, a, uh, he was in the hospital at Port Phillip Prison for quite a long time. And um, he sent me a card. He'd been um, almost out of time. He, he'd been, <coughs> had an awful childhood, awful, awful life. When he was 11, he was made a ward of the state and sent to Bayswater Boys' Home. The first week he was there, the director of the home raped him twice. He ran away from the place. The police found him up near Belgrove, shop, Belgrove uh, train station. They brought him back. He told them what had happened. 
and they just said, I'll keep away from the big boys and didn't say who did it. But next week his mum visited him. This was when he was 11. His mum visited him and he told her who did it. She went to the headquarters of the, of the people that ran the, the boys' home and the result of that was she was labelled as a troublemaker and she wasn't allowed to visit him again. She didn't see his mum until he was 16 and went all through all sorts of things. He went into a life of crime and he was good at it. He was a, he was a um, uh, gang leader in Pentridge, very infamous. Um, but he, as I say, in the, in the last few years of his life, we became friends. And um, he wrote me a Christmas card in 2016. And it said this, he said, thank you for your visits through the year. I've really enjoyed your visits. I've yet to experience, he said, I've yet to embrace Jesus Christ, Kevin, but you keep bringing him closer. It's a beautiful thing. And in our relationships with people around us, isn't that a wonderful thing if we can bring the Lord closer to people in their, in their, in their darkness and in their, their fear and just be able to put to the Lord. I haven't really talked much about, about um, Dismas, have I? Friends of Dismas. Um, we've got some sheets there if you'd like to read, like to learn a bit more about it. We've got some sheets there and also uh, some information written by... There's a lady called uh, Dr Karen Owen who is the, is the head of a, a, an organisation called Big Psych Plus and they do all the assessments of the people leaving prison, the risk factors. And she's just written a, a letter of support for our, our group. Dismas, by the way, is a, is a traditional name of the repentant thief in Luke's Gospel. Luke's... Luke's talks about. Remember the repentant thief who said uh, this day, Jesus said to him, this day you'll be with me in paradise. And um, Dismas in church history is a patron saint of thieves and robbers and ex-prisoners and undertakers. I don't know what it says about undertakers <laughs> but he's the patron saint of those. And so we, we um, there's a group in Canada from the, called the uh, Mennonite people who, who started a program called COSA circles of support and accountability and it helps people coming out of prison, especially people who are sex offenders, who are isolated and feared and hated by, by, by society and um, so we got permission to use that name and we started about seven years ago and we worked with corrections and with the police um, in setting up a group where people could come to have friendship we kept it very strongly Christian at the heart, at the, at the centre of what we're about, because if we didn't, it would become just a post-prison gossip club. It needed to have righteousness at the heart of it. And some people who aren't Christians come regularly, simply because they're welcomed, and it's a time where we can get together. People who are on supervision orders, where it would normally be a breach to meet other, with other people on supervision orders, um, while they're with us, they're allowed to... It's like a sanctuary where, we, where they can meet with them and as long as they're under our supervision. So please pray for us. It's very difficult. We have all sorts of issues and problems. We had one man come one day. We didn't know him very well and he was quite agitated and a bit disruptive in our group. And he, um, he, was, he quietened down and as we went through, we had communion together. And just at the end of communion, he had a bag and he just pulled a hammer out of the bag and threw it on the floor and he said, I came into the city today to do an assault and robbery and I've ended up in church and look what you've done to me. And he threw the hammer down and walked out. 
we haven't seen him again. That there's all sorts of things happen like that that, that are unpredictable. But it's it's it's. Um, please pray for us in it. It's 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 a it's a challenging and or an unpredictable work. I love there's a quote from the Talmud, which said, "Don't be daunted by the enormity of the world's grief. Do justly now, love mercy now, walk humbly now. You are not obligated to complete the work, but neither are you free to abandon it." As we live our lives as Christians, that we be salt and light. And you know those verses. I just want to finish with this in, in, in Psalm 23, verse 6. David, the shepherd boy, the king, said, Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Those two things again, goodness and mercy, and then the Lord's presence. I have a, a friend um, who's still inside, he's high, under high security, he's, he's a long-termer, he's older than me, he's in his late 70s now. He used to be a gang leader in Pentridge, and one day... We were in the, met him in, in Barwon and um, he came running up to me and hugged me and kissed me on both cheeks. And the prison officers in the, in the, in the office stood up, they thought I was being attacked. And we talked with this guy a fair bit, we'd become mates, I hadn't preached at him or anything like that, but he hugged me and he said, I want your religion. And he said, sit down and tell me about it. So we, we sat and we talked and... I just encouraged him to start, I pointed out these things about the basic thing of God's love. You know, Jesus said, I've come that my joy may be in you and that your joy might be full. I've come that you might have peace. I've come to lift the burden of fear and, and, and guilt and, and self. And, and we talked about those things and he said he'd start spending time in the scriptures and spending time in prayer. Next time I visited the youth, he came up to me and he said, I need to talk to you. He said, I think I'm going mad. He said, I see someone who's normally really, kind, really unkind and cruel being kind to someone. He said, I know that's God. God's doing something there. He said, I see a, a sunset and the beauty of creation. He said, I, I remember it's God. When I see a little flower in our little garden in that unit, I see God. He said, I'm going mad. I'm seeing God everywhere. And I said, no, it's just, it's just what's happening, how God works. And um, it's such a blessing to spend time with people who is, it's really, really transforming for them to know that God loves them. You know, there's lots of, lots of good advantages in there growing up in a ch Christian church and having family and learning about the Lord as we grow up. But when you sit with someone who's never had anything like that and you talk to them about God loving the world and sending Jesus and read John 3.16 to them, their eyes light up. And it's just an immense privilege to do that. So thank you for the invitation and, and please pray for us as we continue with this work. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for your work. Thank you for your grace. Thank you for your love. Lord, we pray that as we as your people go out this week into the world, help us to reflect accurately your grace and your goodness to the people we meet. Help us in this, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.